Ask Sherwin-Williams during the March Spring Sale, March 15th through the 25th, and get 35% off paints and stains with prices starting at $28.92. That means 35% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And, of course, get 35% off all of our other colors. Stop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, what did you get Hank Kissinger for his 100th birthday? That's <laughs> well, what I, I'm his friend, so I call him Hank, not Henry. I mean, you know, what I'm depressed about is uh, I, I was not able to deliver my gift because I wasn't invited to the party mm. at the New York, the gala party at the New York Public Library. Well, we should uh, In my hometown, too. We should know? talk about why you weren't invited later. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but a lot of people were. Uh, big show today, Ben. Yeah. We got a blockbuster new report about who bombed the Nord Stream pipeline. The latest. The latest. <laughs> blockbuster report. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a slowly unfolding environmental disaster happening in Ukraine. Uh, some progress towards accountability for the 2021 assassination of Haiti's president. The CIA director, Bill Burns, went to China. The Saudis are just dominating the sports washing game. <laughs> We basically just have to tip our hats to them at this point. Uh, Henry Kissinger mm-hmm. mentioned him earlier in accountability. Trump's classified document woes, media blackouts in Pakistan, and some headlines out of Iran, Afghanistan, and the UK. And monster, then ben, monster show. A lot, a yeah. lot going on in the yeah. world today. This is yeah. one of those weeks where we could have done too. You did the interview today. Friend of mine, friend of ours, a new crooked contributor, Tim Mack, Tim Mack. Uh, who's on the ground in Kiev. We talk about the counteroffensive and Tim's. Uh, Substack is usefully titled counteroffensive. Yeah. Um, Great Substack, by the way. I'm a subscriber. Very good. So we talk about uh, what what what's happening now as there are indications that the counteroffensive is beginning, what the morale issues are on the ground in Ukraine. Uh, Tim talks to a lot of Ukrainian soldiers as well as people around him in Kyiv, what the views of Zelensky are inside of Ukraine. Uh, how does that compare and contrast to the, you know, let's just say, hey, geography of Zelensky around the world. What Ukrainians think of these cross-border attacks into Russia that we've seen more and more of. Um, So it's fascinating kind of glimpse under the hood of like what it's like actually there. And uh, Tim's just a good guy. Good to hear from him. Did you see the semaphore story about kind of the the Ukrainian press office, like stripping accommodations away from reporters, credentials, I should say, uh, who sort of seem to not toe the party line? I did. Interesting piece. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, there's been some interesting pieces recently about some aspects of Ukraine that, you know, we'll talk about the Nord Stream thing. There was yeah. um, there's that long piece in the Times about kind of far-right insignia on some uniforms. I don't know if you saw that. So yes. it's important to remember there's, like, nuance in every society, of course, you know. Exactly. Um, so, it, uh, but but a lot of interesting reporting. Yeah, but Tim Mack, uh, great guy. I've known him from afar. He was a political reporter, investigative reporter. He worked for The Daily Beast and then went to NPR. And I think NPR basically said, as the invasion was ramping up or it looked like Russia was going to invade, hey, could you go over to Ukraine? And he stayed for yeah. a year and then more recently left NPR to uh, go it alone and write for his sub tech, uh, the counteroffensive. 
right? Yes. Yeah, and served in the military too. Served so he has military. that perspective as well. Yeah. So uh, good, great guy. Uh, check it out. Check out his Substack. So Ben, before we get to our news today, though, don't miss our newest limited series. It's called Dreamtown: The Story of Adelanto. Dreamtown is a story of a small California town named Adelanto, known for basically having a huge prison uh, and not much else going on until a stranger came to town with a wild idea to make Adelanto great again by becoming the first city in Southern California to legalize commercial weed cultivation. Uh, and it just changed everything. So check out Dreamtown. It's the story of Adelanto. You can listen for free wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, it's a great narrative series we've been working on for a very long time. I think you all enjoy it. So please check it out. Okay, Ben. So there was this blockbuster report in the Washington Post on Tuesday. I love when they run those big ones on Tuesday. I really yeah. do appreciate yes. it. About the sabotage of the Nord Stream natural gas pipeline. So according to a summary of intelligence that was leaked as part of the classified Pentagon document leaked to the social media site Discord, apparently a European intelligence service collected information about a Ukrainian military plan to covertly attack the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, which carries natural gas from Russia to Germany. That intelligence was passed along to the CIA in June of 2022, so three months before the September 26th attack that ultimately targeted both Nord Stream pipelines. This intelligence apparently came from a human source in Ukraine. The Post says the intelligence has been backed up since by evidence uncovered by German investigators. This covert sabotage team uh, reported directly to Ukraine's highest military officer, who was put in charge maybe to keep Zelensky out of the planning, give him some plausible deniability, we don't know. German investigators believe that Ukrainian special operations troops rented a boat in Germany using false identifications in a Polish front company and then you know, took this, this sailboat over the pipelines, used some sort of underwater vehicle to go 240 feet down, place explosive on the pipelines, and then blow them up. So a professional operation. The Germans found traces of explosive residue in this rental boat. Shortly after the Nord Stream attack happened, uh, President Biden called it a deliberate act of sabotage and accused Russians of, quote, pumping out disinformation and lies. But he didn't directly accuse Russia of blowing the pipeline up. But I think most listeners took it that way. Uh, I did. Yeah. I did, too. Yeah. Since then, uh, I think most Western, at least European countries, seem to have pumped the brakes a little bit. I'm pointing the finger at Russia. There's been some reporting that blame the U.S. I think that's been largely discredited. So, Ben, just a couple of thoughts. Like, first, I continue just to be blown away by how much unbelievably sensitive intelligence was sitting yeah, yeah. on this server yeah, yeah. for the Air National Guard IT guy to get his hands yeah. on. It's like, blows my, like, this, you would think that, like, information fingering the Ukrainians for blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline that we got from some liaison service in Europe would be really closely held, no? You would think, Tommy. You, you, you would, would think. think. Yeah, yeah. But like the IT guy at the Air National Guard base in Massachusetts had it. Which means that thousands of people had it. Yeah, that's know? right. That's, that's, right. that's what's crazy about it. Yeah, that is wild. Um, second, if the Ukrainians really did do this, and I think, look, you know, we should caveat it because it's one source in an intel report. They're not always right. But it does seem like there's a body of evidence pointing the finger at Ukraine. I do think it's by far and away the dumbest and most irresponsible thing that the Ukrainian government has done throughout the entire war. I mean, remember, the, the Nord Stream pipelines, 51% uh, are owned by Gazprom, the Russian state-owned gas company, but the rest is owned by a bunch of European companies. And like, I, I don't know how you blow up infrastructure owned by the French and the Germans and then demand that they give you cash and weapons. I don't know how you kind of hang Biden and other leaders out to dry like this and have them pointing the finger at Russia uh, when you know it's not true. So I just a huge, huge mistake, in my opinion, uh, by the the Ukrainian government here. 
Well, I guess, you know, it's there's a lot of things that are interesting about this. Again, assuming this is true. Um, first, like, pretty capable operation. You know, like, as you said, like, that didn't sound like a simple operation. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. um, the lengths that they went to to conceal it, um, you know, false identities. There's kind of a, an espionage piece of it. And then there's the operational piece of going down. So one thing that we've learned is that the Ukrainians are pretty entrepreneurial, Um Given the amount of their resources, they're able to do a lot. That's yeah, and, and just if like I was totally wrong about this. I remember the first time we talked about it, I was like, I don't think the Ukrainians have like a professional military. I think I probably said that too. Yeah, like I, I think I probably said the same thing. So like they, they clearly have a capability. I think th- to your point, I also would have thought that. Um, the, the thing that is interesting, like I talked to Tim Mack about these attacks into Russia, right, and. One of his points is that, like, if we are to believe the reporting that the U.S. is kind of uncomfortable with this, um, it's pretty striking that the Ukrainians are willing to kind of consistently buck the United States and mm-hmm. its allies in doing these things. And Tim's point was that it's because there's such a value to the Ukrainian people to show that they're taking the war to Russia. But now we've seen that there was U.S. provided military equipment in one of these assaults on a Russian kind of border uh, uh, province. Um, Obviously, there are these drone attacks around the Kremlin um, and then potentially this. And it may be that the Ukrainians are just kind of demonstrating that they realize they can do things that, that, that we don't want them to do, right? So in other words, your argument would hold if it was the case that the Ukrainians doing that was going to put at risk their support from the West, but they may be learning, maybe wrongly, maybe rightly. I don't really know that, well, maybe we can get away with this stuff, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, like, this is a big question about whether the United States is okay with this or not. I don't know. Because if the U.S. is not okay with it, then that is really worrying. Then you're totally right, because it's like, existentially, the Ukrainians need to sustain the support of the United States and European countries to stay in this fight. It's kind of how they equip themselves and arm themselves. And so it's a giant risk, uh, if nothing else, for them to kind of do stuff like this um, and and presume that they can keep doing it and keep pushing the envelope and not invite either escalation from Putin or some kind of blowback from the US and Europe. That that leads to the Biden point. I mean, the, it does raise the question of, of what he was basing that statement on that, you know, the Russians are putting out disinformation. Mm-hmm. And it, was that part of an effort to kind of be in the gray space of a war in which, you know, you, you sometimes, you know, shade the truth, I guess. Um, or did he just not know uh, what had happened? Um, this <laughs> raises a lot of questions. It really yeah, does. You know, th- There's a lot of questions. You, you sort of alluded this uh, to this at the top. The cross-border operations of the Bulgarod yeah. town or region of Russia that we talked about last week, I think, we now know used American MRAPs, American armored yeah, vehicles. Exactly. And I think some of the soldiers on those vehicles had neo-Nazi flags on their arms. Yes. Uh, yeah. So yeah. concerning in a number of ways. Yeah. Two, I talked to some folks in the administration who said, like, in general, over and over again, publicly and privately, the U.S. sends the message, hey... Don't attack this infrastructure. Hey, you know, attacks inside Russia are not okay. And the response is, okay, cool. When are we getting the F-16s? You know, so it's, it, it's a bit of yeah. uh, understandable response, but um, I'm sure frustrating. And then they also sort of, I think people in the government think there are questions about whether this operation on Nord Stream 
was really led by a general to give Zelensky plausible deniability or whether it signals something more like uh, uh, real command and control problems yes. within the Ukrainian military that frankly are a far bigger problem. So this is exactly right. I mean, th- these are the questions that that I kind of circle around on this, which is, and either one is kind of a leads to some pretty difficult conversations, right? Because there is a scenario in which this is a war. It's a massive war in Europe. It's a chaotic existential war for Ukrainians. And therefore, it could be that there are units that do their own thing uh, going into Russia, including you know there a lot of Russians were in that unit uh, that did that attack uh, in, 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 into Belgorod, um, or whether there's some kind of super secret compartmented covert operations group within Ukraine that could attack the Nord Stream pipeline without Zelensky knowing about it. If that's the case, to your point, like, then how many more of these could we see that are kind of over time, perhaps there's more and more independent operators? Or Zelensky himself is, you know, okay with this, authorizing it, at least looking the other way, if Mm -hmm. not like, you know, running it operationally. And then that calls into question, like, hmm, like how far out of step is Zelensky from the U.S.? This is going to be a space uh, to watch because the trend line has been towards more and more risk-taking by Ukrainians in these types of operations. And and I do think at some point, I imagine inside the Biden administration, there's a real question about like, are we okay with this? Are we not okay with this, but we're willing to live with this? Or are we not okay with this and we'd like to see this reined in? Yeah. And we don't, right right now, we don't really know the answer to that question. And, um, you know, I think we'll have to see kind of probably read tea leaves to figure that out. And and listen, I I think it reaffirms Biden's uh, caution to date, right? I mean, I think the narrative in Washington now is like, look, we're eventually going to cave on all these things, the F-16s, the tanks, the long-range missiles. So the we attacks just, into Russia too. Yeah, so yeah. let's just give them everything now. And you and I just talked through all the reasons why, I don't know, it might be a bad idea to give increasingly lethal long-range weapons to the Ukrainians, or at least it all gives voice to why there has been so much caution, because they've obviously known uh, a lot more than we have for a long time. Yeah, and I guess the Hawks case would be this is a war. They should do whatever the hell they have to do. So destroying European infrastructure, even if it's European, right. is worth it to cut off Russian gas. Like the attacks in Russia are worth it to boost morale in Ukraine. Yeah. We worked with Russian Stalin side. to defeat the Nazis, right? Like yeah. those are the sort of historical yeah. things you'll hear. Now say. that is true until it's not. You know, like it, it, we don't know. Yeah, you know, we're only we're only a year and a few months into this war. We still don't know what might trigger some kind of Russian escalation, whether it's some nuclear incident or something else. We still don't know how, like, the fracturing of a command structure in Ukraine might affect European support. I mean, there's a lot of risk that comes with it as well. I tend to err on the side of, like, as as you're suggesting you do, like, um, hey, we got to be pretty careful about this because you can lose control of this pretty quickly. Yeah. but we'll see. Yeah, I mean, at the very least, like the um, kind of commentary that's like more, more, more now with no notes of caution or no sort of, I don't know, humility about the Iraq war or any other sort of events of the last 30 years is uh, troubling to yeah. me. Speaking of escalations, Ben, I mean, you're going to talk a lot more about Ukraine uh, with Tim Mack, especially about the counteroffensive. But the other big news today is that uh, a major dam and hydropower plant ar- around the Dnipro River has been blown up probably by sabotage, putting at risk hundreds of thousands of people downstream from it who are at risk of getting flooded out or drowning and creating this long-term environmental disaster. 
Reports say this dam was holding back a body of water the size of Great Salt Lake in Utah, so massive. And that water is used to cool nuclear infrastructure at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Uh, So far, the IAEA says there is no immediate nuclear safety risk. But boy, hearing about, you know, lack of cooling water for a nuclear plant gave me uh, Fukushima uh, PTSD. Um, There are also concerns I read about landmines getting washed down streams or detonated. Water supplies will be at risk in in big parts of Ukraine and in Russian-occupied Crimea. So the Ukrainian president, uh, Vladimir Zelensky, blamed... Russian terrorists, he said, for blowing up the dam. Uh, he's been warning about attacks on this dam for a year. I saw last week, um, actually Tim Mack linked to it in his uh, in his newsletter, there was concern that there was going to be some sort of uh, sabotage operation on the nuclear plant. Maybe this could be part of it. At the same time, the Russians, uh, Dmitry Peskov, the Russian spokesman, blamed Ukraine. They said this was Ukrainian sabotage. It seems to have happened just after the counteroffensive may have started. So like... The big picture point is disaster after disaster for the people of Ukraine. But per our previous conversation about Nord Stream, I mean, it does get harder to know who to believe. In yeah. Yeah. It, it's interesting because it creates, it, it, first and foremost, it creates real humanitarian, even kind of ecological disasters uh, that are going to be felt most acutely by the people of Ukraine. It, it also, though, kind of complicates things for both sides of the conflict. Um, you know, it threatens, I think, the water supply into Crimea. It threatens this nuclear plant. It threatens population centers that are Russian controlled and they're Ukrainian controlled. And to your point, like given, you, you know, it's interesting. The Ukrainians have been very, in addition to what we just talked about with these operations, they've also been kind of opaque sometimes about what's information, what's disinformation. And yeah, we are at a point where it's you obviously trust entirely trust the Ukrainians and Zelensky more, but you do kind of scratch your head. You know, it's hard to know what's happening um, in the fog of war right now. And our what what may seem apparent one day, you learn later, was very different. And yeah. I couldn't tell you right now who blew up this dam and why. And yeah. and, and that that's kind of going to be part of the. Uh, the context of things too. Yeah, hopefully we'll learn soon. Um, but uh, really, really awful for all the people downstream of that thing. Yeah. Um, let's turn to Haiti, Ben, because there was a, a big update on the assassination of former Haitian President Jovenel Moise after a federal judge in Florida sentenced a businessman and former drug trafficker named Rodolphe Jar to life in prison for his role in the assassination. Jar reportedly conspired with Haitian officials. He hired Colombian mercenaries and used armed ship from the U.S. to pull off this assassination. There are still big questions about the role that current Haitian political leaders, including the then prime minister, now acting president, uh, Ariel Henry, may have played in the assassination plot. Uh, bizarrely, this guy, uh, Jar, admitted his guilt during an interview with the New York Times yeah. while he was on the run like, yeah. like a year ago. Yeah. And he later voluntarily agreed to be extradited to the U.S. There's a bunch of co-conspirators who I think have not been prosecuted yet. So since the assassination, gang violence in Haiti has exploded. The UN Secretary General said violence in Port-au-Prince is comparable to a war zone, uh, calls to send in an international force of some sort, uh, or international peacekeeping force have not materialized. Uh, Instead, there's just been an uptick in vigilante reprisal attacks against gangs by average citizens and no political uh, resolution in sight. So, you know, I'm glad that someone got prosecuted and may do life in prison now, but it's not helping the people of Haiti. Well, yeah. And first of all, in the prosecution, it's pretty amazing that uh, like the U.S. just prosecuted someone for the assassination of a foreign leader. 
<laughs> it's not like a bigger deal. Um, it's something kind of sad about the fact that like Haiti's scene is a place that's just violent and stuff yep. like this happens. I think it's really important having done this to continue to pursue the other pieces of this conspiracy, which clearly ran through Haiti itself and its political actors. And that's important to know because you don't want to be rewarding people that were involved in assassination. There were mercenaries from South America like who were carrying this out. There may have been other people in the U.S. who were part of this. So I think very important to not stop with this prosecution and just try to to unravel all the threads here and and pull the, pull, hopefully pull as many of these conspirators in as we can. Um, and at the same time, yeah, I mean, th- there needs to be clearly some intervention. I don't mean a military intervention, but some more robust uh, intervention diplomatically and with assistance and uh, and maybe with some kind of peacekeeping component. The Canadians uh, were being recruited by the U.S., I think, to send peacekeepers mm-hmm. or a force to Haiti. They didn't want to do that. But the need is still clearly very much there for some kind of effort to restore some amount of stability. What you mentioned about civilians rising up against gangs is pretty remarkable. Uh, the people are putting their lives on the line through this kind of vigilante counterattacks on gangs. It just shows you the degree of frustration and desperation among the Haitian people. Um, so this is something where I hope that we just don't get numbed to this kind of constant state of violence in Haiti, but continue to try different ways, uh, not just to have justice for this assassination, but to um, to, to have a better, a better Haiti policy. Yeah, better Haiti policy, some sort of, I mean, I don't know that they've had a functioning government in any way for, for years now. No. Another big story this week, Ben, was uh, the Financial Times reported that CIA Director Bill Burns secretly traveled to China in May to meet with his sort of intel world counterparts with the goal of maintaining an open line of communications in those intelligence channels. We also know that Biden's National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, went to Vienna in May to meet with his Chinese counterpart. President Biden in public has repeatedly stressed the need to have some sort of, you know, crisis hotline type channel set up to prevent conflict. So sending Bill Burns makes a lot of sense. He's widely respected. He's got deep relationships all over the world. I'm sure the Chinese feel like he's a known quantity to them uh, and a discreet one at that. Ben, I would bet that, I'm curious what you think, that both Jake and Bill were probably sent with like a letter or a direct message of some sort from President Biden to pass along to Xi Jinping. It's interesting to me that uh, the Chinese were willing to grant Bill and Jake these meetings while refusing to schedule meetings with the Secretary of Defense or with Tony Blinken or with Joe Biden himself with with Xi. Do you think Bill got the royal treatment like uh, French President Emmanuel Macron a little different? <laughs> like, how do you think this went? I don't know that he had the same tea ceremony, yeah, but yeah. look, I mean, we've seen in the last few days um, kind of what you are worried about when you have a kind of spiraling uh, U.S.-China relationship. In the Taiwan Strait, uh, a U.S. warship was kind of cut off by a Chinese vessel, um, such that the U.S. warship had to kind of put the brakes on so that they didn't collide. Yeah, it's got to be hard to do, put the brakes on a destroyer. Or Not the easiest thing. And, and you know, what you worry about there is as the Chinese carry out more and more military activity in the Taiwan Strait, the body of water between Taiwan and mainland China, that, you know, Maybe next time it doesn't get the brakes in time, there's a collision, and how do you manage that? Didn't they recently do this with a fighter jet and a there's an tanker? Am- yeah, there's an amazing video where the U.S. had kind of a reconnaissance or surveillance plane in the sky, uh, same same territory, which we see as international and which the Chinese kind of claim as their own. And they basically buzzed it. And you can see in the plane, it's like rattling and the pilots there. I mean, this is pretty close calls. Yeah, right? and, and that's a big deal because if you fly through someone's jet wash, as we all know from Top Gun, uh, it can lead to bad outcomes. I mean, I got my fucking uh, you know, degree in aviation at Miramar like yeah, you did. I got my heart broken by goose. So. 
Yeah, we saw what happened to Goose, right? And, and, and I make these points because the reason this is connected is right now there was a sense that there was no floor under the U.S.-China relationship, that things were collapsing, that from the cancellation of Tony Blinken's visit and the after the balloon fiasco and everything, we weren't even talking. Lloyd Austin's not getting meetings. It does feel like both sides are at least through this kind of quiet diplomacy, Bill Burns, the you know, U.S. ambassadors having meetings. Uh, you got other U.S. diplomats going over there, uh, Dan Crittenbrink, our Assistant Secretary of State for Asia. There's an effort to kind of reestablish communication. At a minimum, you would hope that that could allow for, yeah, like hotlines, military to military discussion to try to avoid escalation around incidents like what I talked about. But at the same time that the U.S. is trying to do that, we're rolling out a big old welcome carpet for Narendra Modi that is like a centerpiece of our anti-China strategy in the region, right? And so- Yeah, he's addressing a joint session of Congress. He's addressing a joint session of Congress. Lloyd Austin was just in India talking about defense cooperation. Like, So this is the complicated and delicate dance that is being done by the Biden administration, building this kind of counter-China coalition and policy and strategy while at the same time saying, hey, we need to talk to each other. I, I think it's right to be trying to talk to the Chinese- uh, but they they probably do need something more kind of formalized in terms of engagement and meetings and Biden talking to Xi than just doing it through the CIA director. That's a might be the right place to start. And like you said, I'm sure there's probably letters being carried back and forth. But I'd like to see a place, you know, and I don't think it's a reward to China to say we should be exchanging visits with Tony Blinken and his counterpart. We should this should be kind of more above above water, as it were. Um, because right now it feels a little tenuous. You know? Yeah, it does feel a tenuous. You, you mentioning uh, the India, the, the Modi visit did make me uh, realize I hadn't prepped anything on this horrible train crash in India that uh, reportedly two trains collided, maybe with a third train. 275 people were killed. More than 1,100 were injured. There's no like, not a big public policy piece of this for us to discuss in terms of the US. I mean, it's more like train infrastructure and investment, I think, but uh, awful and just worth mentioning. The only, the human piece is obviously the most acute, but the only public policy piece is part of the US strategy as we're kind of separating out from China, right? I think is going to be encouraging all that investment that was flowing into China for so many years. Like, hey, invest in India instead. They're going to be our friend. And this is the kind of reason that that investment doesn't happen. You know, um, so obviously the human piece is most important, but the kind of you know lack of infrastructure and corruption and and it's opaque and like it. Th- this is a reminder that it's not going to be easy for India to just kind of become the new China in terms of attracting that kind of business. Yeah, it's a really good point. You know who is willing to spend huge money on pretty much anything though, Ben, is uh, the Saudi government. We had some big news on the Saudi sports washing front. On Tuesday, the PGA Tour and the Saudi-owned Live Golf Tour announced that they have agreed to a merger. For you non-golf fans, the PGA Tour is sort of the original organizer of pro golf events. Uh, the Live Tour launched last year as this Saudi-backed alternative to the PGA. They were paying players just to show up. It, it led to these really kind of fun fights between players who were still part of the PGA and players that joined the Live Tour. There was a legal battle that was going on in addition to the War of Words. And here's a, a, a sort of a representative quote from uh, Jay Monahan, the head of the PGA Tour from last June. I think you'd have to be living under a rock to not know that there are significant implications. And as it relates to the families of 9-11, uh, I have two families that are close to me that lost loved ones. And so my heart goes out to them. And I would ask, you know, any player that has left or any player that would ever consider leaving 
Have you ever had to apologize for being a member of the PGA Tour? A question now everybody will get to ask. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Donald Trump celebrated the news, Ben. He truthed great news from Live Golf, a big, beautiful, and glamorous deal for the wonderful world of golf. For some reason, he put it in all caps. Credit to uh, the Donald. He actually predicted this via a different truth like last year. The Saudis are also making big moves in soccer, Ben. Real Madrid star Karim Benzema reportedly signed a three-year, $643 million deal to play with the Saudi club. This comes after Cristiano Ronaldo signed a deal with the Saudi club that is uh, reportedly worth $200 million. So here we are, man. Uh, I guess I'm not in any way surprised that at the end of the day, uh, big money is trumping you know, human rights considerations in sports, in business, uh, even for the U.S. government. But wow, has it been depressing to watch. And yeah. it happened fast. What's this, this, this asshole's name, Jay? Uh, Jay Monahan. Jay Monahan. Okay, like let's start with Jay Monahan. Okay, because first of all, are those concerns no longer true anymore? So basically, a few months ago, when you felt your business was threatened, you play the 9/11 card. You talk about the 9/11 families. Is that not true now today, Jay Monahan? No, and, and just you're right. But also, <laughs> yeah. like him playing the 9/11 card, then I think was a little disingenuous. Like he was using. 9-11 to win what was a financial fight exactly. for the PGA Tour. Exactly. No, but that's what's yeah. so cynical yeah. about it. So, so the first point is it just proves that that guy was willing to play any card. Total right? creep. Second point is I feel bad for all these PGA people who took a stand. And we've talked about people that turned down a lot of money, right? I think Tiger Woods turned down like a billion dollars or something. All these people who sold out, who sold their soul, Phil Mickelson, Greg Norman, people just jumping into the bed with Mohammed bin Salman, a man who ordered the dismemberment of a Washington Post journalist, never mind all the other things that he's done to create human suffering inside of Saudi Arabia and his neighborhood. Yeah, um, those people pocketed those checks and now they get to come back into the fold, right? So those people won and the people that took the right stand on these issues whether it was because they their affinity for the PGA Tour, whether it's because they had some qualms with like signing up for the Live Tour, those people get punished. Well, right? no, they, they had a golf star named Rory McIlroy, uh, sort of leading the PR offensive against the Live Tour, doing all these press conferences. I think it, it definitely like seemed to, you know, harm his play, yeah. maybe harm his mental health. Right, he was taking all these shots. Uh, from live and at live, and now he, they hung him out to dry completely. Hung him out to dry, and then uh, like the the main point here is like this is just showing the worst version of what MBS probably thinks, which is at the end of the day, everybody's for sale. Yeah. And none of it matters. Nothing matters. What you say about 9-11 doesn't matter. What you say about Jamal Khashoggi doesn't matter. What you say about brutal suppression inside of Saudi Arabia doesn't matter. What you say about the war in Yemen doesn't matter. What Joe Biden says is a presidential candidate making him a prior. None of it matters because at the end of the day, they're going to win because they have the money to win. Right. And we're now, I mentioned you, like we're going beyond a state of sports washing, which we've talked about is like the reputation laundering from hosting events and, and just having their brand associated with these sports to like just kind of buying these. They're buying players. They're buying franchises. They're buying golf tours, right? They're, you know, they're dealing with Trump and, and they get away with it all because they have money. And like until people decide to care about something more than money, this will continue to happen. They're going to be making plays into soccer. They're going to be increasingly aggressive, get more players, get mm -hmm. more teams. They might get Lionel Messi. They might get into Amer other American sports leagues and franchises. And like, this is just where it's going. And, you know, like the PJ Tour that had seemed to take a stand 
that, that it was about something other than money. Turns out they were just kind of leveraging a deal out of the Saudis to get like a big payday. The, the grossest thing I saw is some guy saying like, once I had this meeting with my Saudi counterpart in Venice, and by the way, not Venice, California, um, then I knew everything was going to be okay. Like, what? What? Like, what are you talking about, bro? Uh, yeah, they, they took a brave stand for about a year. There's one theory that the PGA Tour caved because they couldn't afford to compete with the Saudis in court. And they were worried about what could come out in discovery about their, quote, not-for-profit status as an organization. So, you know, that's something to be mindful of. Uh, ben, there was a statement released, though, by... The 9-11 Families United National Chair, uh, Terry Strada, she lost her husband on 9-11. She said, uh, PGA Commissioner Jay Monahan co-opted the 9-11 community last year and the PGA's unequivocal agreement that the Saudi Live project was nothing more than sports washing of Saudi Arabia's reputation. But now the PGA and Monahan appear to have become just more paid Saudi shills. Pretty well Seems said. accurate. Better rent than mine. Uh, we should note that uh, Secretary of State Tony Blinken is going to Saudi Arabia uh, June 6th through 8th. So today, tomorrow, yeah. the next day. Uh, he is going to talk to them about Saudi Arabia, maybe normalizing relations with Israel. The New York Times says uh, that would require a U.S. security guarantee to defend Saudi Arabia from future attacks, including from Iran, uh, and U.S. help building a civil nuclear power program in Saudi Arabia and more weapons sales. So uh, let's hope those talks don't go very far because I'm not totally sure what we get out of it. And that would well, like if it's just normalization with Israel, then it's just Israel gets something, the Saudis get a lot. Yeah, they <laughs> both get embassies. Yeah, we'd have to see what, what what's in it for. We get to pay a ton of money States. and maybe yeah. get dragged into yeah. a war. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's, a, it's a, that's obviously a, a space to watch here because um, that's like where this discussion is going. Again, like the geopolitical context is. I think the U.S. is concerned about what happens if the Saudis pick up all their toys and all their money and just go fully into the China-Russia camp. Um, and so that's kind of lurking in the backdrop of this, too. Yeah. And meanwhile, the, the Saudis are cutting oil production because yeah. prices are going down and they can't let that happen. Yeah. And so it's, you know, the, the, there's there's more to it, that I think, than just, you yeah. know, the Abraham Accord. Uh, let's take a quick break. And we come back, we're going to talk about Henry Kissinger. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Oh man, what would I do? Sleep would be nice. Yeah, yeah. Hang out with my daughter. I don't know. Take a nap, read a book. No, I wouldn't do a book. I, listen, I wish I would pick book. Yeah, but uh, listen, we all wish we had another hour in a day. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Whoa. 
My therapist is trying to get me to be still for five minutes a day. So much harder than it sounds. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's too many videos to see. There will be a podcast in my ear. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Okay, Ben, so Henry or Hank. By the way, perfect. The real politic transition, Henry Kissinger, is pretty natural place to go after the Saudi it relationship. It really is. It really Henry is. Kissinger would love a Saudi deal. There's, <laughs> no, there's no human being alive who would be a bigger validator. Well, he probably is. I mean, he, yeah. he just turned 100 years old. Uh, that has sparked a big round of media coverage and, and parties and celebrations of his life and career. Parties that we should add were attended by uh, several people that we used to work with, that we know well, that we love and respect. Podcast guests. Podcast guests. So, but you know, the the sort of the Kissinger celebrations started about a month ago. I happened to be watching CBS Sunday morning and caught live this like shockingly fawning piece about Kissinger that made my blood boil. I can't remember if I whined about it to you on the show or just via text uh, and Twitter. But it was a piece by Ted Koppel. It's ninety percent uh, like what a genius. It's like hagiography and, and like about the statesman and the genius of Henry Kissinger. Here's the lone section uh, of criticism. Here's a clip. Many of his critics were not even alive when the events they condemn occurred. There are people at our broadcast who are questioning the legitimacy of even doing an interview with you. They feel that strongly about what they consider, I'll put it in language they would use, your criminality. That's a reflection of their ignorance. It wasn't conceived that way, wasn't conducted that way. Look, there is no question when you and President Nixon conceived of the bombing of Cambodia. You, you did it in order to interdict. Come on. We have been bombing with drones and all kinds of weapons. Every guerrilla unit that we were opposing, it's been the same in every administration of either party. The consequences in Cambodia were particular. Come on now. No, no, no. Look, we're, we're, look, we're partic- this is a program you're doing because I'm going to be 100 years old. Right. And you're picking a topic of something that happened 60 years ago. You have to know that it was a necessary step. Now the younger generation feels that if they can raise their emotions, 
They don't have to think. If they think, they won't ask that question. So Ben, uh, some whataboutism on, uh, on steroids, probably Viagra as well there. Had you heard that before? Had you seen this segment? I've not. Uh, I actually saw the Isaac Chotner interview of Ted Koppel about the segment. But, <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah, so yeah. I- I'm embarrassed to say, when I watched it, I thought that it was George Will, not Ted Koppel, because <laughs> <laughs> they kind of look alike and sound alike. And yeah. I thought it had to be from kind of a neocon perspective. But you're right. Isaac Chotner uh, in New Yorker interviewed Ted Koppel about the segment, and it did not go well for Ted Koppel. So let's, Ben, let's just divide this into two parts. Let's talk about Kissinger's record, why people detest him, uh, for lack of a better word, and then the question of accountability for people who worked in government. So in terms of of Kissinger's record at the risk of sounding like uh, I'm I'm doing just a liberal screed, should we start with Kissinger sabotaging uh, Vietnam peace talks and extending the war for five years? Do you want to start with the secret bombing of Cambodia that killed uh, you know 150,000 civilians? You want to talk about genocides in Bangladesh, East Timor, coups in Latin America? Where to begin? I mean, let's begin because I think we need to get to to all that because <laughs> this is worth digging into. This is kind of the heart of this podcast, actually, this conversation that we're about to have. Um, if you talk about Vietnam, because you're not wrong that that war escalated under Lyndon Johnson, like that war like was well on the way to killing a lot of people um, in the United States and even more people, obviously, in Southeast Asia. Um, there's a number of things worth identifying here. One is that in 1968, there were peace talks and there was a kind of a peace agreement kind of on the table. And there were kind of backdoor communications from the Nixon campaign, which Kissinger is a part of, saying, don't make that agreement. Wait for us. You know, blah, blah, blah. Because they didn't want to help Hubert Humphrey. Yes. They didn't want to help uh, have a peace agreement that could help Nixon. They get elected. And what do they do? Okay. The war continues for five more years, as you said. During that, the, the bombing of places like Laos and Cambodia goes up dramatically. I've been to Laos. I've been to the most heavily bombed parts of Laos where to this day, children are still picking up cluster munitions and getting their fucking arms blown off because of that bombing. Those are human beings. Henry Kissinger wants to say that the young people that were born after this happened don't know what happened. You know who knows what happened? The young people in Laos who continue to get their fucking arms blown off because of the bombs he dropped. They decided on the way out. Their theory was to preserve U.S. credibility because we were not going to win this war. We basically had to bomb the shit out of these countries to send a message to anybody else not to cross the United States. The peace deal that they got at the end of the day that Henry Kissinger got the Nobel Peace Prize for was basically the same Same fucking deal deal that they could have had in 1968. Tens of thousands of Americans died. Millions of people in Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia died. The Khmer Rouge ends up taking power in a completely chaotic and destroyed Cambodia, kills another million people. Okay, so th- these are not he, he he draws this equivalency. Everybody should hold you know drones. Yeah, hold us accountable. Okay, but th- we're talking about millions of people. We're not talking about drone strikes. We are talking about indiscriminate bombing of civilians and children for the sake of quote unquote credibility. To credibility to get a better deal that was no different than the deal they could have had. Right. So to give a couple more numbers here, this is from a great piece on Kissinger and the Intercept. Between 1969 and 73, when Kissinger was National Security Advisor, the U.S. dropped 500,000 or more tons of munitions on Cambodia. During all of World War II, including the atomic bombings, the United States dropped around 160,000 tons of munitions on Japan. So that just gives you the scale yeah. Those are not drone of strikes. the indiscriminate yeah. carpet bombing. Yeah. So that that's, I mean... <laughs> That's what I have to say uh, about that. I mean, the 
the Latin America piece, you know, uh, basically in the, in the under the guise of anti-communism, supporting the dirty war in Argentina, which the torturing and disappearance of civilians in Chile, um, Kissinger, th- we have tapes, right? This is not a, like theoretical. There are no. tapes, right? It's not disputed on, on in any way. one of the yeah. tapes in describing his support for a coup in Chile, Kissinger says, quote, the issues are much too important for the Chilean voters to be left to decide for themselves. Just think of how haunting that quote is, right? And so then he supports a coup that puts Pinochet in charge, a dictator who governs for the next couple of decades. Again, like people could argue that the cause of fighting communism and winning the Cold War was so important, but we can't ignore that this happened. You know, um, what we try to, I think, bring to this podcast is the perspective that, yes, foreign policy is interesting and important and tough and usually involves contradictions and trade-offs. And sometimes in search of a greater goal, like winning the Cold War, you do some ugly things. But, you know, the cost of that is delegitimizing America's support for democracy, because people across the world, particularly in the global south, we have conversations today on this podcast about why people in the global south don't side with us on Ukraine. This is why, because they don't believe the United States when we talk about things, because they've heard tapes of people like Henry Kissinger saying, "Eh, it's too much important to let the voters decide, U.S. foreign policy should decide. In the bombing of Cambodia, that was kept secret from the American public, from the U.S. Congress, from people in the Pentagon. And and Kissinger also has a uniquely direct role in these events. He not just was there at these meetings. He was helping make the policy. He was helping choose targets in Cambodia. Like Pentagon staff would come over to the White House and he'd be like, bomb there, bomb there, bomb here, right? Like this is a guy who was directly involved. Um, You know, we, we, we won't dig into it in more detail, but, you know, Kissinger also, his record is so long that he, you know, turned a blind eye towards Pakistan's uh, slaughter of Bengalis. Uh, he gave the green light to Indonesia's invasion of East Timor, resulting in hundreds of thousands of deaths. So Both like, of those are basically ethnic cleansing situations. Yeah, genocidal yeah, ethnic cleansing. So the list goes on and on. That's why he's sort of like, I think, seen as a uniquely evil figure in the U.S. by a lot of people. And the only one to say, because there is positive record we'll get to. Yes, It's important, it. Soviets and China, but you, you should tee that up. The only one thing I say about this is the couple and a lot of these people, they'll frame it as like critics say that these things, no, like, this, these is things a, this is objective reality. Like these are people's lives, right? And so I just think it's worth calling out like this whole like, your critics call you this, but everybody else says you're genius. Like, nope. like these aren't critics. These are like, this is reality. Like, ask a person in Laos, ask a person in Chile, ask a person in Cambodia, ask a person in East Timor, ask a person in Bangladesh. Yeah. No, you, I, I could see your face. People couldn't see it because it's a podcast, obviously. You reacted to the same thing I did that enraged me when I watched that CBS piece, which was they're showing photos of Code Pink protesters. And they're like, his critics weren't even alive when some of these events occurred. Like, that's somehow relevant? Like, we can't read a book? That's what really got me because we're not fucking idiots. You know, I mean- like, ugh, that, that there's a dripping disdain for people that like that are anti-war. And again, we'll, we get we'll, we should get to the positive side of the record. Like, well, so let's just do it. Positive yeah, side, right? right? Like, you know, sort of uh, rapprochement with China. He he led those efforts that yeah. got Nixon to China. Yeah. I think he helped as a professor uh, get our nuclear policy in a less insane place. Yeah. And uh, helped with nuclear disarmament. What else would you add there? Th- those are the to me the two big ones are essentially. Um, the detente with China that led to normalization of relations with China that really did contribute to the end of the Cold War and obviously kind of opened up the gates to Chinese economic reforms, which led to efforts to lift hundreds of millions of people out of poverty in China, right? Yeah. Henry Kissinger deserves some credit for that. We're obviously now living with with, <laughs> with the Chinese Communist Party is still is you know deeper entrenched. And is that going to be, you know, it'll 
take another couple hundred years to know whether that was yeah, the Yeah, 70s Kissinger might yeah. think that's a mixed bag. Yeah, exactly. Um, but that the to- uh, historic achievement, um, detente with the Soviet Union, like basically that work Kissinger did as an academic and then as a national security advisor and secretary of state kind of leads into the arms control era of the 70s and 80s, lowering the risk of nuclear war. Um, and, you know, that's important. <laughs> that's, that's hugely consequential and smart things. I mean, part of what I notice in Kissinger's record is the great power stuff, like when he's dealing with people that are kind of near his weight class, you know, it's about diplomacy, it's about detente. It's the lack of regard for the less powerful, you know, the smaller countries, the the people that don't get a voice at uh, in Ted Koppel's programs or at gala parties at New York Public Library. You know, that's what is to me complicated, not just about Kissinger, but about American foreign policy generally, mm-hmm. right? Is that, you know, our successes tend to be about our own interest or managing great power relations. Um, but the record as it relates to what we say are our values in these other places, I mean, I just don't know how you can square any of us that signed up to serve in American foreign policy, and you and I did, have to accept some hypocrisy, have to accept some contradictions. But Henry Kissinger made that like, not just an art form. It was like he's the avatar of that. And I I don't think that's something to celebrate. And just, indif- just indifferent to the, indifferent. To the harm caused yeah. to civilians. And look, and I also, I think that this conversation around Kissinger folds into a broader conversation about accountability for people who served in government and the challenges we've had about finding what's right there. So, you know, we've talked about this when it comes to uh, the architects of the Iraq war and the cooked intelligence basis, the the CIA torture program. I suspect there's a very good chance that our kids will one day yell at us about Obama's yeah. use of drones. How could you have been in the room when and, these things happen? And honestly, good. They should. Yeah. That's a good thing. I think those conversations are important. But um, I do think since Nixon was impeached, uh, we have done a terrible job with accountability as a country. You can look at uh, Iran-Contra. You can look at Trump's uh, impeachment proceedings and sort of the lack of any kind of real outcome there. And, you know, look, that's not to say you can't learn a lot from Kissinger. There's people out there saying like, oh, uh, Tony Blinken interviewed him for his thesis when he was in college. Well, of course he should. This guy was like in the room when decisions were made. He's the most powerful figure in yeah. the history of American foreign policy. Argument. Right. But like, And I'm also, I'm not suggesting that you need to like throw shit at him on his 100th birthday, but I do think the way he's being celebrated right now in the CBS piece, in these parties, in a lot of the media is part of a broader s- story about frustration with like kind of chumminess in elite circles, uh, in government and business and media and kind of the impunity of powerful people. Uh, and he is the poster boy. Yeah. I mean, we didn't get in the fact that when he left government, he talks about the last four years, what he's been doing is profiting by setting up one of these, you know, he consults corporations and governments. Nobody knows who, but he's kind of created this revolving door, like a uh, lucrative business. He was going to be on the 9-11 commission, but resigned because he would have had to uh, disclose his clients. Yeah. And he put the, the, those interests over <laughs> the interests of getting bottom line off. I mean, I, I guess the way to tie this in a bow, and it's such an important conversation, um, is I, like, you're right, like just saying, let's cancel Henry Kissinger or or even having some expectation that that he'll be prosecuted as a war criminal. Um, There's a lot of challenges with that. And uh, and a lot of people who served in the U.S. government um, would be opening up a lot of cans of worms. I would say the list that we went through at the beginning of this is is very. That's a that's a 
that's a different level of magnitude than anything that's happened recently with the possible exception of the Iraq war. Um, but also somewhere in between like being prosecuted as a war criminal and being feted um, as like an oracle and a genius and celebrated in every editorial page and gala after gala and getting softball interviews. There, there's somewhere in between those two things. And the degree, the two problems I have are one, the degree to which like our establishments wrap their arms around Henry Kissinger, it's why people are cynical. It's why people are cynical about politics. It's why people are cynical about establishments. It contributes to people like Trump. When Trump comes out and says, remember back in 2016, well, we have some killers too. Like there, it proves Trump right uh, when it suggests that like Henry Kissinger is going to get the biggest foot rub in the world for his birthday party. And the other thing is it'd be different if Henry Kissinger showed any degree of self-reflection yeah, on this. None. I mean, we sit here and beat the shit out of ourselves about these things. Like, has he, would he, would, he should go to Laos and like look at those places where those bombs still are. He should go to Cambodia. He has not done that. Instead, he gets defensive and says, we had to do it. He didn't have to do those things. And he's made no effort to kind of come to terms with them or to try to see the world from the eyes of those people. And I would hope that the people that go to those birthday parties, in addition to doing that, that they make themselves look at the world from the eyes of a Gabriel Boric, a president of Chile yep. today, or of someone in Laos. Because yep. that's what too often the U.S. foreign policy establishment refuses to do. Yeah. Uh, speaking of uh, lack of accountability, let's talk about Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going long today, yeah. and I guess that's just okay. So a couple updates just on the, the hoarding of classified documents. So first, this week, Trump's lawyers met with special counsel Jack Smith and other prosecutors at the Department of Justice about the case. Merrick Garland did not attend. The attorney general did not attend. The Washington Post reported that during this meeting, Trump's lawyers said they believe their client is being treated unfairly. Oh, <laughs> surprise. Uh, and urged DOJ not to prosecute him. NBC News reported that a federal grand jury in Florida is meeting this week to hear more evidence in the case. CNN reported that an employee at Mar-a-Lago drained the resort's swimming pool last October <laughs> and ended up flooding the room where the servers uh, containing the video surveillance logs were kept. The, hey, when that happens, Ben. Yeah. Uh, luckily, the IT equipment wasn't damaged. The guy who drained the pool is a maintenance worker who also helped Trump's body man move classified boxes before the <laughs> DOJ subpoena was served. Uh, the Post says Special Counsel Jack Smith has audio of Trump bragging about having a classified plan to attack Iran during an interview with two guys writing a biography of Mark Meadows. They now can't <laughs> find that document, although it seems like he was waving it around in the meeting. That audio actually demonstrates that Trump knew the information had not been declassified. There's other audio from his lawyers that talks about classified documents he had. So I, I don't know, man, like what else do we need? To, this guy, <laughs> if he does not get indicted soon, I will be shocked. There's so much evidence that they obstructed justice and have this information. And it was important information. I, I talked too much in this podcast, right? I'm going to ask you some questions here, uh, first of oh. all. Um, <laughs> like, w w first of all, like what is the what is the Mark Meadows biography? You know, Dude, I, like, I, I, yeah. I, I had the same like, who's, exact. Who's the audience for that? Apparently biography? two people are working on, I think it's an autobiography. So it must've been his ghostwriters writing a book about Mark Meadows. Yeah. Second, I want to put it in context, like they're talking about a war plan, maybe an Iranian war plan. Do you recall like a leak investigation around, I don't know, potential cyber, uh, alleged U.S. cyber operations yeah, against Iran? Pretty intense one. Yeah, yeah. Remember having to talk to the FBI about it. Yeah, yeah, I do too. Because the point is that like, that is like, 
incredibly sensitive material. As sensitive as it gets. That yeah. the U.S. government would go after people, prosecute people, pursue people over just a hint of this. And if he's just walking around with war plans and then draining pools to try to get moving shit around to kind of cover it up, that's not nothing, right? Yeah, there was a suggestion that maybe, you know, the classified documents he'd taken were like, oh, the letters to Kim Jong-un or trip memos yeah. or whatever, like intel about foreign leaders saying nice things about him. No, the, the Iran war plan is getting waved around in a meeting. And and I guess like the, the basic point here is that if the last question to ask is if if you're able to walk out with war plans and... High, like try to destroy things with pool water or move shit around and then just kind of get away with it. What message does that send about Yeah, uh, like any employee that wants to walk out of the U.S. government? Back to our accountability yeah. point. I mean, yeah. total impunity for all these actions. The obstruction of justice hopefully will make it impossible for DOJ not to prosecute. Yeah. I mean, I just don't know how you can allow this to stand. Um, and, and, you know, never mind the questions that remain to be answered that I hope Jack Smith can get at given this crew as to whether or not this Saudi nexus and this, mm-hmm. li- you know, who might be interested in the Iranian war plan? Hmm. Saudis. Saudis. Yeah. Like who might be interested uh, in, you know, getting leverage over Trump? Saudis, right? So like, I hope that that's a part of this conversation. Yeah, me too. Uh, the Intercept reported that the Pakistani military invited the owners of the country's largest media organizations to a meeting and then ordered them to stop covering former Prime Minister Imran Khan. That directive was passed down to journalists who leaked it to The Intercept, among others. Uh, and it's also just been confirmed that Khan has basically vanished from the news in Pakistan. Uh, remember that Imran Khan was pushed out of the prime minister's job in a no-confidence vote last April. That vote was li- widely seen as orchestrated by the Pakistani military. Khan has been engaged in this furious PR campaign ever since, blaming his ouster on the U.S., saying it was some sort of Western coup. He demanded his supporters take to the streets. He was finally arrested on corruption charges last month. Erasing Khan's name from the news would basically be like U.S. outlets one day just not covering Donald Trump anymore. I'm sure there are listeners thinking, oh, that sounds wonderful. But I assure you, uh, it would not be cool if the Pentagon was the one dictating that editorial decision, which seems to be happening in Pakistan. Well, and also, like, it's proven to be a horrible strategy. <laughs> you know, like, like every, All-time backfire. Everything yeah. that the Pakistani military has done to, to uh, shut up or to evict Imran Khan from politics like it's just made him more powerful and made him stronger. And and so I, you know, like this will backfire spectacularly is my guess because like Imran Khan seems to has a, have a way around all of these things. Um, and so the, their effort to kind of, and this is a guy, by the way, that was not like an effective prime minister. No. But he's a populist leader. And their approval is going up now. Yeah, exactly. And so their effort to silence him is only contributing to his, because people, guess what people don't like? They don't like the corrupt the military state in Pakistan. Um, and if he's seen as the victim of that, it's only to strengthen him. Yeah. Uh, a couple quicker headlines to close this out here. Uh, the AP reported that Iran is building a new nuclear facility deep enough in the side of a mountain that it could be beyond the reach of even U.S. weapons designed to blow up these heavily fortified targets. Another part of the Trump legacy of uh, pulling out of the Iran nuclear yeah. deal. Congratulations. Exactly. It comes as the, the Iran's uranium stockpile is over 10 times what it was during the Iran deal when the Obama deal was in, in place. Uh, and talks to get Iran back into the deal seem dead. On Tuesday, Iran unveiled what they claim is a hypersonic missile. So I'm sure that'll flip everybody out. So again, yeah, one of the bigger uh, cell phones in U.S. foreign policy yeah, history yes. pulling out of JCPOA. Yeah, and 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 not. It's interesting, like because it's Iran. Like there's there's not really accountability. It gets back to your accountability point. Like there's not really accountability. We talked about the Venezuela policy 
failed spectacularly. The Iran policies failed spectacularly. But it, like if your policy kind of fails against a Washington boogeyman, like it d- doesn't matter as long as you were like, you know, taking wax at that yeah. boogeyman. You don't you see know? Tom Cotton writing op-eds being like, uh, <laughs> yeah. the JCPOA was working. I was wrong to say we should have pulled yeah, and Or you don't see people saying like, you know, uh, how, how could we ever allow the people that were the authors of the withdrawal from the Iran deal to ever serve in government again because this is such a big cell phone. Um, so something tells me it's harder if you like were worked on the Iran deal to get get confirmed in uh, Congress than it is no if you were part of pulling out of it. No doubt. Uh, officials in Afghanistan believe that nearly 90 schoolgirls were poisoned along with their teachers. So the victims reported nausea, shortness of breath, and headaches. Local officials blamed maybe intra-village rivalries for this happening. Others suspect the Taliban was behind it. Uh, there have been similar incidents in Afghanistan before in 2012 and 2016. And then more recently, hundreds of schoolgirls in Iran got sick earlier this year in what some Iranian officials thought was a deliberate wave of poisonings. This obviously comes after the Taliban took control of Afghanistan in 2021 and have severely restricted women's rights, including prohibiting girls from attending school after sixth grade. So again, these were very young girls who may have been poisoned just for going to school. Yeah, it's you were just, a sick fuck. If yeah, you were a sick fuck if you're doing that. And I mean, like it just it speaks to a level of nihilism, like embedded in a faction of the Taliban and their society that like we can't, you know, it's hard to get your mind around that. Yeah, I mean, really we and it speaks to the need to continue to spotlight what's going on there. Yeah. Uh, last thing before Ben's interview. So British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is in Washington this week. His first official visit. Uh, he's going to hang out with President Biden, members of Congress, business leaders. And he's apparently planning to go to a baseball game between the Nationals and the Arizona Diamondbacks. Ben, it is uh, UK-US Friendship Day at Nats Park. I was going to make fun of this and act like uh, at Fenway, we just have like, you know, like beer night and bleacher brawls. But then I Googled, and it turns out uh, we do a lot of these events. April 16th was Cocoa Melon Day at Fenway. For those of you who don't have young kids, you might not know Cocoa Melon, yeah. but you will. Yeah. Uh, so I'll shut up. So lots of speculation, though, about whether Sunak will throw out that's the what, first yeah, pitch. That's what I was going to ask you. So the Daily Mail is reporting that staff at number 10 are very worried about it <laughs> because they don't want him to pull a Dr. Fauci and airmail the thing like 15 feet outside the batter's box. What do you think? I mean, do you think... First of all, does Rishi play sports? I think I read that he might have played cricket. Uh, yeah, I mean, which would be practice. I, like Rishi strikes me as the kind of guy though that would practice for like a really long time for that pitch. Remember, yeah. Obama practiced a lot. Yeah, and and it still doesn't always work out. But like you like, have an armor, you don't. You, you either have an armor, you, you don't. don't. Like yeah. what does he wear is important. Like yeah, if is you're he, wearing, is a he wearing the, like the skinny tie and the, like the you know uh, tight shirt, or is is he trying to do sportswear? Um, it's just hard for me to see him being like a authentic, uh, you know, American jock type uh, baseball player. But uh, we'll see. Yeah, he looks in shape. Um, but, but put it this I don't way: know about athletic. It's kind of a metaphor for the entire thing. He'll probably do better at this than Boris Johnson or Liz Truss would have done. But it still won't be that good. <laughs> very, very true. I'm, I'm, I'm wikiing him right now, trying to look for something sporting in his early life. Uh, this is great radio right now. Who knows? I guess what I would tell them is, you don't need to throw off the mount. You know, like I think you can get plenty of press just for going to the game, just for being seen with the right people. I mean, maybe he'll go with Joe Biden. I have no idea. Maybe he'll go with Dr. Jill Biden. We did um, 
Obama and David Cameron went to a basketball game, right? Yeah, they went to a NCAA tournament play-in game in Dayton, Ohio. Tommy, you and I both contributed to the planning for that trip and went on that trip. Um, just to show that we are not above cynical politics, the selection of Dayton, Ohio in a presidential election cycle. Total happenstance, right? Totally coincident yeah. that we decided to fly there on Air Force One with the British Prime Minister. David Cameron, by the way, interesting David Cameron story, had no idea what the rules of basketball were. Really? No idea what the hell was going on. Like Obama was trying to explain, literally didn't even know, like, you know, how many, like, nothing. And it was also, like, pretty. Let's just say it wasn't like a high-scoring game. It was like, shitty game. It's a shitty game. Yeah. The, the coolest thing I went to, maybe in my entire time at the White House, was in 2011. We went to the Carrier Classic. Do you remember this? I went to that too. Basketball uh, game. Amazing. On an aircraft carrier, the USS Carl Vinson, where we saw uh, UNC play Michigan State. One of the coolest things I ever. In like a great game, but also these poor kids like. Shooting a basketball is hard to begin with. Shooting when the background is like the San Diego skyline <laughs> when and, you're and used to a gym. Carrier, yeah, yeah and Barack Obama's be, there. Yeah. yeah, Barack Obama's watching you play. Yeah, it was pretty intense. That was really cool. Yeah, and it's at the beginning of an Asia trip. We went from there to Hawaii to Australia to Bali. Yeah, that's one of those 10-day trips. Yeah, I love that. I love by the that. end, you're just like, who am I? By then, you're like, Dr. Ronnie. <laughs> Dr. Ronnie, yeah. I need all the pills. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, we miss you, Dr. Ronnie. Come back to reality. <laughs> yeah. uh, just kidding. That guy sucks. Okay. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, you'll hear Ben's interview with Tim Mack about all things Ukraine. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One. Because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... <laughs> uh, you heard it here first. 
Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. I'm very pleased to welcome to the podcast Tim Mack, who is the founder of The Counteroffensive, which everybody should check out online. It's a great resource for uh, news about the war in Ukraine. Uh, and Tim is also a crooked contributor. So, Tim, welcome to Pod Save the World. Thank you so much. Uh, this is my first crooked contributor appearance. So this is it's a big milestone for me. Yeah, your first activation, as it were. Um, well, we'll look forward to hearing you across uh, different crooked channels and platforms. But uh and people should follow yours, but uh, you're in Kyiv. Um, so like everybody, uh, we've been talking for, for months now about this counteroffensive. Um, and uh, there's indications that something may have begun at the front, a lot of activity in the last couple of days. What are you hearing there about uh, what's taking place and, and, and whether this is what we've all been waiting for? I'll tell you how you have a sense that that something really big is happening is that all the folks that we've been talking to that are troops, soldiers on the front lines, they suddenly don't want to talk. They're all quiet. They don't really want to discuss anything, even like what they're feeling or what they think. There's been this kind of veil that falls across the front line. And there's been this messaging, particularly from the Ministry of Defense, that plans love silence. And this is kind of like the loose lips sink ships of, of this war. Um, and that people are just, in general, uh, not really interested in talking right now. And that's been a real departure from the past when people have really wanted to told, tell their stories. And it's, a, it's an indication, at least to me as a, as a reporter and journalist, that something is happening. And then beyond that, there are clues from the Ministry of Defense, the Deputy Minister of Defense of Ukraine, one of their deputy ministers, um, was saying that a lot of their troops are now moving from a defensive posture to an offensive posture. Um, and then, of course, there are other news items that I'm sure we'll get into that, that indicate something big is happening on the battlefield. Both the Ukrainians and, uh, and the Russians have started signaling that, that a major counteroffensive operation. In terms of what to expect, and I want to get into the different dimensions because there's political dimensions to this and psychological dimensions uh, as well with this war. Um, but just in terms of uh, the physical sense of this, um, you talked about people not talking uh, which is a, an important indication. In the past, you know, last uh, the last time there was a major offensive, we saw kind of a, an initial uh, focus on the south around Kherson, but then this kind of surprise movement um, uh, in the in the northeast around Kharkiv. Um, it, it seems like the priority, at least uh, certainly the priority from the U.S. perspective, is breaking that land bridge that connects, um, you know, uh, eastern Ukraine down uh, to Crimea through southern Ukraine. Um, do you get any sense, uh, it seems like, first of all, there's pretty good operational security on this stuff, but do you get any sense from your sources or, or just your own intuition about this war, about what to expect in terms of the Ukrainian priority um, uh, geographically in this counteroffensive? Let, let's let's talk about what they've said is their priority in the immediate short term. So the, the Ministry of Defense has talked about how some of the fiercest fighting still remains in the Bakhmut region in eastern Ukraine in what's known as the Donbass area, right, which has been some of the ho most hotly contested areas uh, that, that have been contested over the last few months. 
Um, there have been a lot of predictions made, and I don't want to be made a fool of. (laughs) You know, if you listen to military analysts a few months ago, I guarantee you none of them said that Russia-aligned fighters would be fighting in Russia right now in the Belgorod region and holding territory uh, from the Russian state. I mean, that that, that was a real wild card that, uh, that has developed and is currently underway. There's fighting on Russian territory by Russian uh, soldiers, Russian nationals that are that are aligned with the Ukrainian state. Um, I think you're right that strategically it makes a lot of sense for the Ukrainians to aim to cut up the land bridge. And, the, and there's not only a, a, a general um, a military sense to that, there's also a big moral and um, emotional sense to it that uh, you'll, you'll, you'll think back over the course of this war, some of the most important stories involve things like the siege of Azovstal in Mariupol, right? That some of the most, uh, the, the, some, some of those emotional and important uh, stories that the Ukrainians have to tell among themselves are the people who sacrificed in order to resist uh, the Russian invasion in the early days and then continued to resist even when it looked to be hopeless. And that, that's at, at the Azovstal steel plant in Mariupol. And so there's a strategic sense to it and there's also a kind of moral end um, the, a moral sense to it, and, and 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 the Ukrainians have really been focused on not only information operations, but also on kind of convincing or trying to convince the Russians that Ukrainians have a much higher sense of morale than they do. Um, this may or may not be true. Uh, I think certainly the Ukrainians have more to fight for. But if you talk to Ukrainian soldiers they, along the front, they're exhausted, just like I'm sure the Russian soldiers are. They have, they're fighting on home turf in a lot of ways. Um, but they're trying to, to eke out these moral wins, these, uh, these things that will boost the general confidence of the country to continue the prosecution of this war. And that, that's been as important in a lot of ways uh, as you know, strategic military victories. This is really interesting because I want to get into this. I, I, first, I want to start with objectives, and then I want to get into this uh, morale issue. Um, you know, on, on the objectives uh, for what to expect, say, over the next you know six to nine months, right, until things uh, really get cold again and, and and the front line kind of hunkers down, like we saw this winter. I've been struck by the fact that probably to project morale and to to attract support from the West. Um, the Ukrainian political leadership is very maximalist. You know, we're on the verge of victory. A great victory is coming. You know, we had Jeff Goldberg on recently who was, you know, interviewing Zelensky and, the, you know, we can feel victory in the air. And and yet, if you talk to military analysts, I don't think anybody believes that, you know, in the next six to nine months, they're, they're going to evict Russia from Ukrainian territory, uh, absent some really dramatic collapse, essentially, of Russian forces. When you talk to Ukrainian sources, what is actually success in this in this counteroffensive that has been so discussed? I mean, in, in terms of, I, I almost worry as someone who's you know obviously pretty supportive of the Ukrainian uh, cause here about the gap between what is potentially achievable on the battlefield and what the kind of rhetoric of victory is. Um, are, are people aware of that gap and just managing it? And, and how do you think? What do you think success is in say this? calendar year again not asking to make real predictions about this exact amount of territory but but what do you think the kind of the 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 practical military planners there 
think would be like a you know significant progress over the course of this the rest of this year? Well, one thing that is really clear to me is that this is not a counteroffensive that is being conducted out of military necessity per se. It's being conducted at this particular time out of political necessity, right? That that this counteroffensive is being seen by a lot of Ukraine's staunchest allies in the West uh, as your big chance. We have given you all the, the you know all this aid, all this money, all this uh, hardware. This you need to show us something in exchange for it. You need to sh- you need to show significant gains, and so the Ukrainian government realizes that and is operating on more of a political. Um, timeline than on a necessarily a, a, a military one. That, that's one thought I have. I think there's some understanding that, you know, that on the battlefield, not everything can be, can be won back. Um, at the same point, what we've seen also is, is that when Ukrainians push forward outside of Donbass, where, where there have been really uh, steady lines for some, you know, eight years, uh, that when Russian forces collapse, they co- collapse in a pretty dramatic way. You've seen that around Kyiv. You've seen that around Kherson. You've seen that around Kharkiv. Um, and that, they, they coll- they, they, that, that this is kind of getting back to the morale question and the information operations question, right? That, um, that when it comes to these huge victories that Ukraine has, uh, has won on the battlefield, many times it's because of Russian collapse as opposed to, you know, Ukrainian military brilliance. Not that, of course, of course, Ukrainians are fighting and dying and uh, have shown their resourcefulness in, in a thousand different ways. Um, but they've been aided by a relative lack of, of morale on the Russian side. And when the Russian lines do collapse, they collapse in, 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 in a terrific and, and, um, and dramatic manner. Yeah. So uh, on, on this morale point, um, which, as you're identifying, is kind of central to everything from Western support for Ukraine to battlefield success. Um, you know, we see Zelensky, you know, for, you're in Kiev, right? The rest of us who are sitting just about anywhere else in the world. Zelensky is kind of centralized in his person, <laughs> the, the embodiment of morale. And it's incredibly defiant and it's incredibly certain of victory. Um, but, you know, you I know you talk to soldiers, you talk to people on the ground. Obviously, you're surrounded by Ukrainians. Um, is that an accurate representation of the Ukrainian mindset? Because, you know, it's kind of been social media memed, right, of, of this kind of constant sense of Ukrainian fortitude and resilience and, and unity. Um, I'm not suggesting that, that there's not truth to that. I, 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 I just know that nothing is ever that simple. And I'm just curious what your sense is on the ground of the mixture of resilience, exhaustion. Is everybody behind this war? Is everybody behind this political leadership? Are people frustrated with the West? Like, what stands out to you as as the uh, as the nature of Ukrainian morale now, and and what might be areas of concern um, uh, as we look ahead? I want to make a point about Zelensky, and then I want to make a point about resilience. So let me start with Zelensky, that he is really like deified in the West, as you mentioned, and Ukrainians have this long. And I think positive history of complaining constantly about their leaders and their and their political situation, like much like Americans do, much like many people in the free world do and, and are responsible to do when they feel so. Right. 
I, I, I think a lot about conversations that I've had that go kind of like this, um, particularly in um, places in central and eastern Ukraine where uh, before the war, Zelensky was not, not super popular. You, you may remember that before the war, actually, his, his ratings were really in the toilet. I mean, uh, that the vast yeah, majority like the 30s, of... 30s, 20s, and 30s, yeah, yeah. Very, very, very low approval ratings. And, you know, you talk to folks there, and they are unified in, in one sense, right? They, they say, I, look, I didn't vote for Zelensky in the last election, but I have just been blown away uh, by how he's unified the country, his courage in staying in Kyiv when his life was in personal danger, and his, you know, the way he's executed the war in a way that has been much better than most Ukrainians, even themselves, would have predicted would have happened at this point. And then, you know, they, they let a beat pass and they say, but I wouldn't vote for him in the next election either. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like that, yeah. you know, it reminds me of Winston Churchill in, in World War II, where as soon as the war was over, they yeah. didn't want a wartime prime minister and he didn't win re-election after World War II. Um, Ukrainians have that kind of, uh, they have that kind of relationship with their leaders. They're very supremely skeptical um, they have, over the last few decades, engaged in a number of, uh, you know, color revolutions, other kinds of mass street protests in order to make change in their governments. And you get the sense that with so much sacrifice over the course of the war in, in the last year and change, that if things don't go the way they like, uh, that they'd be ready to do it again. That there's a lot of energy on, on you know, in the public. Um, so they're not exhausted in in that sense. Um, that 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 there are two wars really. The two reasons why the war is being fought. One reason is the obvious one, which is that Russia invaded, and that they're fighting to to defend their territory. And the second reason is that uh, I think a lot of Ukrainians feel that they're fighting a war to create a more progressive, a more free, a less corrupt, more aligned with the EU kind of country. And they'll be very angry, disappointed, and will rally on the streets if they don't get that outcome. And especially if whatever candidates are, are available in whatever future elections come about, don't represent that version of the future. So that's my feeling on the political situation and, and Zelensky. On the resilience side, what I found so interesting is, well, for, for one, I mean, just looking at the course of the last year, I thought in the winter uh, with no power in the city, there'd be a total humanitarian disaster. People wouldn't be able to heat their homes. Businesses would, wouldn't be able to operate. Kiev would be a ghost town. And it turned out not to be, right? That people were a lot more resilient than I gave them credit for. Uh, people found a way to adjust their businesses adjust their lives, adjust their transportation, and continue to operate. And what's so strange about life in Kyiv today is that if I were to go outside, I'd find it's a nice, uh, warm, kind of spring, summer day, and people are out on patios drinking cocktails and eating sushi and, and uh, you know, enjoying a nice espresso or something like that. Um, and then everyone retreats to their homes around curfew and overnight, as most nights in May, probably more nights than not, um, there are explosions everywhere in the city and everyone gets up at two o'clock in the morning or three o'clock in the morning and, you know, it either goes to a internal corridor or to a bomb shelter or something like that and no one sleeps well and everyone wakes up and then 
you go out into the city and it's packed and people are trying to live their normal lives again. There's this enormous sense of resilience and people trying to live life as it's normal. Um, and it, 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 you know, it, and one more point I'd, I'd make about that is that it's kind of a double-edged sword. When soldiers come back from the front lines, they look at this and they say, well, these people are totally out of touch with the war that's <laughs> yeah. going on, right? Yeah. Like, you know, people are drinking cocktails in Kiev or in Western Ukraine in Lviv. Have they forgotten about us uh, yeah. and what we're enduring on the front lines in Donbass or you know, it, closer to, to, to where the action is in Kherson, for example. Um, it, you know, a lot of soldiers are split on this issue because on the one hand, this is the normalcy they're fighting for. This is the sort of thing that they are literally risking their lives to try, try to preserve. But on the other hand, that sort of, the sort of uh, pedestrian nature of life in this, the big cities makes them wonder if people haven't, just tried to find a way around confronting the reality that there's a war happening. Um, so there's that there's that there's that feeling as well. It's funny you mentioned this. Uh, I, I, I and this just occurred to me. I, I like I I was talking to this woman um, about a week ago, um, who's a Ukrainian disability um, advocate. Um, she's a disabled uh, woman who was actually a, a model and is now runs runs. Uh, organizations and efforts to try to, you know, uh, promote disability rights. Because she was in, starting in 2014, she was in, um, she was in hospitals in the Donbass, you know, working with newly disabled uh, troops to kind of prepare them for a life. You know, she's in a wheelchair to prepare them for that life. And just having this one conversation with her made me realize, like a big chunk of the Ukrainian, putting aside the, the, the dead, which is obviously you know a horrific a number of Ukrainians killed. The the number of of, of men um, and women who are are going to be wounded, uh, who are going to be de- we've seen in our country a, a very small sliver of our population suffer grievous wounds, PTSD. Uh, this is not the main event, I know. This is but is Ukraine ready for the fact that generations of, of people are going to have scars? You know. Um, and is that already manifest in, in, in people coming back with disabilities? It's, just, I, we, it's something that doesn't get talked about much, but I'm, I'm trying to contrast the front line and the yeah. cafes in Kiev, as you, you say. The kind of in-between of that is, you know, relatives coming home who, with serious wounds. Um, mm-hmm. Is there a, a recognition of the degree of trauma that is going to have to be dealt with in this society for, for a very long time? You know, I talk to soldiers and, you know, I'm a former soldier myself. I was a yeah. U.S. Army combat medic and, and, and I feel I relate to them in, in, in a number of ways. But, but one thing that, they, that I hear a lot is that people feel a lot less stressed on the front line than they do when there's silence at home and yeah. they're back on the home front. And they're yeah. forced to confront and reckon with the things that they saw when the adrenaline, the, the adrenaline was really pumping, you know? And... Um, I think that there's a delay in the reckoning. I, I think when I talk to folks about this, they say Ukraine is pretty behind even the United States when it comes to mental health issues. There's a real kind of macho attitude yeah. towards it and, and a feeling yeah. that, you know, real men, real uh, strong people uh, don't need mental health 
when they're struggling that they can just deal with it. And and that's a that's a that's a uh, uh, a mentality that's you know counterproductive and something that will need to change if uh, if if these issues are to be addressed. But there's also a generation of people who are young and. Uh, and interested in solving the problem and nipping it in the bud who are trying to say, well, hey, the way you deal with it is to talk about things and be as open and transparent with people and have that social support from your friends and family and say, you can talk to us and we're here for you. Um, and there's th that part of it too. I think that there's, there's going to be a big delay in addressing this issue because there are more, uh, Maybe I'm not putting this in the most artful way, but to Ukrainians, there are more important issues to deal with right now. Yeah, yeah. And there this are more urgent issues, include, which include yeah. the physical violence that needs to be conducted in order to win this war. Um, this, is an this is an important and interesting issue to be dealt with, but really, it's not a core priority. Um, yeah. And so I think there's going to be a delay in the reckoning. Uh, there, and I think, but I think you're absolutely right to identify this as a, a huge problem. A generational problem uh, that that will challenge society here for for many 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 years. Once hopefully this war ends. So one more question, like uh, we the, on the morale side of things, we've seen these attacks into Russia that are a bit more brazen, right? Um, you know, there have been car bomb assassinations. There have been these drone attacks, including around the Kremlin that you know the U.S. apparently believes Ukraine was behind. Um, there's been this offensive, as you mentioned, of kind of Russian nationalists using probably Ukrainian provided weapons, uh, launching cross-border attacks into Russia. How much of that is about, you know, really wanting to bring the war home to Russians? Um, and how much of that is projected back home? Like, see, we can bloody their nose too. Is, is part of that strategy around these kind of pretty brazen and risky attacks? Is part of that to, to send a message to Ukrainians back home, see, we're going to bring the war to them too? Well, look, I, you know, the Ukrainians have conducted or been responsible for or supported these actions despite the objections of, of the Americans, that one of their most important and strongest allies, right? And so the United States has been pretty clear about this, which is that they don't support attacks on Russian territory. They don't condone them. And so when, they're, when the Ukrainian government, which has you know, sometimes often denied involvement in these operations, um, uh, does get involved with with this sort of thing. They're doing so despite the objections of their you know their strongest and and probably their most important ally. Um, and they're doing it. Well, let me put it a different way. I've never seen Ukrainians as happy as the morning they woke up and realized that there were strikes in Moscow for the first time. A barrage of strikes in Moscow for the first time. Like people were smiling, they were grinning, they were saying. You know, we've been beaten up for more than a year. Finally, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta throw a jab back, and not even like a particularly, you know, as compared to what Russia has done to Ukrainian territory, not a particularly equal jab. But hey, at least we got a strike back. It was huge for Ukrainian morale. I mean, I, I remember that day very distinctly because of how many people were laughing, smiling, joking in a way that you don't expect yeah. people in a war zone to laugh, smile, and joke. Yeah. Um, and and so I would say those attacks were not really done for huge strategic reasons. Probably on the strategic side, it's a net negative. It, you know, you're alienating you know your biggest ally and going against their stated and explicit wishes. But on the morale front. 
um, it was huge. And on the information operations side, it was a signal from Ukraine to Russia. By the way, we can reach out and touch you too. Yeah. Well, look, Tim, where uh, we'll I'm sure be coming back to you. Uh, where should people follow you uh, to just give 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 our listeners a sense of like uh, what you're up to and where people can follow you as as we'll be checking in with you as well in the coming months? Yeah. So basically, I launched a new publication based in Kiev in Ukraine, focused on fighting Ukraine fatigue by doing compelling human interest and investigative stories. So we start all of our issues with a first-person narrative from someone in the news. Basically, we think of the news as vegetables and uh, like a compelling, uh, a compelling human narrative and narrative journalism using the 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 the, the tools of fictions and uh, fiction and and novels and applying it to nonfiction. Using that storytelling method as a way to kind of wrap uh, the vegetables around something a little meatier. And so we've launched this thing called the Counteroffensive, and you can read it at counteroffensive.news. And it's a Substack uh, where we put out, um, you know, regular updates on the war through human lenses. And we will always have a dog of war at the end of every single edition. So I hope your listeners will check it out and take a look at what we're doing. Great. Well, we appreciate it. I uh, hope you uh, stay safe and uh, we'll look forward to, to being in touch here. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks again to Tim Mack for joining the show. Uh, thanks again to Dr. Ronnie for lots of good times uh, and good luck, Richie Sunak. Good luck with that pitch. Um, yeah. Uh, we'll we'll uh, Thank you for sticking around through all of our various rants <laughs> yeah. and twists and turns. But it was, it was a lot. There's a lot to unpack. A lot going on. The USS Carl Vincent, 8,000 people were in the stands on the flight deck of the 95,000-ton Nimitz-class ship. That is very cool. Most of them uniform personnel. Uh, Michelle Obama was there. That was a great, what a fun day. Everything about that. Cool that thing. was one of the cool th- Every now and then you got to do something like that in the White House and you're like, oh, yeah, that's our, cool. Yeah, uh, our former colleague, friend Josh Ernest, uh, was so geeked out because he's like a real sports fan. Did, did you see on the Ernest family Instagram that Josh was there for the Kansas City Chiefs at the White House? Nice. And Josh's kid met Mahomes. Oh yeah, well-deserved. By the way, good radio here too, but there you go. It's a good picture. Got a picture of the It's a great pick. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, all right, that's all for us today. <laughs> uh, talk to you next week. See ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producers are me, Tommy Vitor, Ben Rhodes, and Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. Our associate producer is Ashley Mizuo. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick, Kyle Seglin, Charlotte Landis, and Vasilis Futopoulos are our sound engineers. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, and Milo Kim, who upload our episodes and videos to YouTube every week. And check out the Pod Save the World uh, YouTube account. Thanks to Saul Rubin for production support. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One. 
because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 